Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Hey, good morning, guys! Welcome to Man Challenge. Come on in and grab a seat. We're going to get rolling. Hey, how many of you guys, this is your first time at Man Challenge? Or at least first time since you can remember. Hey, man, that's awesome. Hey, if you God just raised his hand, high five that hand. Man, I want to talk to you guys that just raised your hand for a minute. Uh, my name's Ronnie Cordray. I get to serve on our men's team around here, and it's our pleasure to put together an environment like this. This is our kickoff. We haven't met since uh, May, so we're all excited to be back in this room. I want to tell you a little bit about what Man Challenge is about. First off, uh, if you struggle with verses like Romans 7.15, which says this, uh, maybe you can relate to this, maybe just me. Romans 7.15, it says, man, I don't understand the things I do. It says, the things I don't want to do I find myself doing, and it says, but the things I do want to do, I don't do. You know, in other words, what's that all about? Man, as a 50-year-old man, I, I relate to that verse every day. And so I need other men that I link arms with. You know, there's this picture we're going to fl- put up on the screen. It's of these lions. It's of this, this pride of lions. And I've got this uh, coffee mug at my house that says this. It says, it has a picture of lions like this. It says, surround yourself with those who are on the same mission as you. That's what Man Challenge is all about. Uh, There's no perfect dudes allowed. Uh, If you struggle with sin, you're in good company. But the goal is not for us to just develop smart sinners. It's for us to learn who Jesus is, what he did, and model our lives after pursuing living that out. And so we're best doing that linked arms together. Now, I want to tell you something. You're not alone. We are all stronger together. That's one of our values around here is developing intentional, authentic male relationships. We're stronger together. I need encouragement and accountability to grow, and so do you. Here's one thing I've learned about myself in 50 years, and the same is true of you. I stink at being my own accountability partner, whether that's with fitness, whether that's nutrition, whether that's spiritual goals. When I am my own accountability partner, I am schizophrenic, sporadic. I make deals that I'm not going to follow through with. So I need other dudes who will help me make progress in the goals that I'm sharing that I want to make, whether that is spiritual, physical, nutrient, like all these different things. And so, man, there is nothing magical about what happens at our tables. Uh, We have a teaching time each week, and the role of that is to tee up God's Word for us to unpack together. You know, a mentor of mine years ago said, we're all educated beyond our own level of obedience. Uh, We don't need more knowledge, more mic drop knowledge. We need to learn how to be obedient, and there's no better way to do that than linking arms with other dudes. Now, because of that, chemistry is really important. We have 50, I think, six uh, groups in this room represented, and every group has a different personality. So here's the deal. If you're you're new, if uh, you were placed at this group this morning, here's what I want you to be thinking. These guys at your group, or at least a couple of them, are they guys that fast forward, even though you don't know them today, uh, based on the chemistry, are these guys you're like, man, you know, come Super Bowl, I could picture myself watching the Super Bowl with these guys, or at least want to. If your answer is 
yeah, I think I could. Chances are you found a good group. Now, on the flip side, if you're like, eh, I mean, they're nice, but I'm not on the chess team anymore. Yeah, then here, you need to go back to I'm new table after today, and our host team will help you find a different table, and you don't have to wear sunglasses next week, all right? The main thing is that you're here and engaging. It's not, and table leaders, make sure that we don't interrogate a guy if he switches. And if guys keep switching, uh, uh, maybe you're the weirdo. But we don't have any weirdos. No, it's great. It's great. You know, I, Dave Stone was my first youth minister growing up. When I was in fourth to sixth grade, he lived with us on weekends. He used to be a senior pastor here. And here's why I tell you this. He was the first person that showed me that you can be a Christian and still be nuts and have a blast. I resonated that in fourth to sixth grade. Guess what? I probably resonate with that even more as a 50-year-old man. Here's the thing. Pursuing Jesus, we don't have to act like uh, we were baptized in vinegar and have a scowl on our face to take Jesus real serious. In fact, we've read the back of the book. We know who wins, so we can, we can walk in freedom, and we should be modeling being distinctly, marked as distinctly different in ways that allow us to live in such a way and being joyful even with life hands us a doo-doo sandwich, even when things are hard, we can still have a joyful spirit about us, not fake it till you make it, but because of our relationship with Jesus. So let's, let's just make a pact, that, like a commitment that we're going to be marked by being men like that. We're going to laugh a lot and still have hard conversations in the tennisful conversation. We're glad you guys are here. It's going to be a great semester. I'm going to bring up Sam Reeder, who's going to be teeing up God's Word this morning. Go ahead and welcome Sam to the stage. By the way, while he's coming up, uh, we have these things. These are for you. These are guides, and each week we encourage you to take notes on these. Uh, we're seven times more likely to remember something if we write it down. And speaking of that, everybody's guide in the back of it, it's, if you turn to the back of your page, it says this. It says progress goal. Remember we said no perfect dudes allowed. We, we focus on progress, not perfection. I want to encourage all of us today uh, before we dismiss, to write down one tangible goal. A goal is not a goal until you write it down and tell somebody. And then before we dismiss this morning, say, hey, you know what? Um, I'm going to, this is something I want you guys to encourage me and hold me accountable to. That might be showing up next week. Maybe that's your progress goal. That's okay. Uh, whatever your goal is, I want you to share that, and we'll link arms and do that together. So Sam Reeder, good to so, see you, man. Good to be seen. So, okay, so we haven't met for three months. Hmm. Ballpark figure. Um, when you're awake or asleep and not at work, what percentage of time would you guesstimate you wore a tank top this summer? Oh, it was pretty high. And it's almost like gotten worse. It was originally like I needed something to wear on 4th July, so I was all out. But then it feels good, and the pits get to breathe. And then enough of your buddies make fun of you that then you just keep the tan lines going just to, just to live it out. What, how many tank tops you got? I don't know. Probably too many. More or too less many. than five? More. Okay, yeah. so. Well, I run in them. They're, they get sweaty. You got one on that shirt? Maybe. All right. Maybe. Well, <laughs> I, I, I love seeing you in a tank top, and that's really weird to say in front of a group of men. <laughs> this is a conversation. One of this my spiritual great. gifts saying dumb things. Here we go. Yeah. All right, so we are teeing up a brand new series, and the thing is, here at Man Challenge, we're talking about fruit of the spirit, but also yeah. starting tonight, uh, and this weekend, mm -hmm. as a church, all play, we're starting that deal. Tell us what that's about while we're, while we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. 
Yeah, sure. So past couple semesters, really a couple years we've done that, that to, to launch the fall and the spring semester as a church-wide initiative, we all lean in and study from one angle or another the same thing. Uh, and so for this fall, it'll be the fruit of the Spirit. But uh, you think as our church grows 10, 12, 14 campuses as we spread out, it can naturally be hard to stay united. So if we all study the same thing for the same period of time, we kind of lean in together. brings unity across the spectrum. Uh, but also what I personally really like about the All Plays is that it just naturally sets up conversations for us outside of these walls. So like if you have kids that go to SE Kids or middle school ministry, high school ministry, if you're a young adult, if you're a single, if you're in couples, if, you're, if your wife or, or girlfriend is in women's ministry, if you're connected here in men's, we're all going to be talking about the same stuff. So then outside of here, very naturally, you'll be thinking about the same thing. So whether you're at the dinner table, in the car, the golf course, the gym, the break room at work, it's just going to be very natural to, you know, I was thinking about what we talked about. Y'all were probably talking about that too. And, and so it sets up conversations outside of these walls, which I think is pretty cool. Um, so we'll, we'll be doing a series on the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe you've heard of that. Uh, it's from Galatians chapter 5. It's nine characteristics. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so each week as a church, everybody is going to look at one or two of the fruit, turn them over, pick them up, set them down from different angles, and just try to, try to get a better understanding holistically of what's going on there and what the Lord wants to do with that topic through us. Yeah. Well, I can't think of uh, a better guy to tee us up talking about love. This guy has modeled biblical love to me and my family Mm. through hard times and celebrated with us in the good times. So thanks for being a man of integrity. Let me pray. We'll turn Mm. over to Sam. Lord, thank you, Father, for these men. Thank you for the gift of togetherness, gathering in your name and for your purposes. And God, I I know that that in a room this size, there's all kinds of stories represented that came in here. But God, would you remind every man in this room that you are for us, that you're for them, not against them. And whatever shame or guilt or heaviness that a man uh, came in here with, Lord, would you remind every one of us that because of your son Jesus that you call us to live as free men um, because of Jesus. And so this morning, we thank you for being for this, and we ask that you are honored by everything that is said and takes place in this room. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ronnie. Well, good morning, guys. If you will, just to start us off, there's going to be a picture pop-up on the screen. Direct your eyes to that, and we're going to have, I'll I'll warn you, it's not a a pop quiz on art, because I'm not an art guy, but this is a famous picture. What's what's the name of it? Mona Lisa, right? You You know that. I can recognize this and Van Gogh's Starry Night, and I think that is it. I don't know any other stuff, so don't worry. I'm not going to throw too many tough questions at you. Who who painted this? Da Vinci. Okay. So, if we were going to study Leonardo da Vinci and try to learn about him, surely we could look at this and learn some things about his artistic ability, his skill set. And this picture is not about da Vinci, it's about the Mona Lisa. But we could learn about him because he's its creator simply by looking at something he created. That's fair to say, right? Uh, this, this picture was, was created during the Italian Renaissance. If we were going to study the Renaissance, again, we could look at this picture and learn about the types of artistic work that was popularized in that period of time. This, this is about a woman. It's not about the Renaissance, but even by looking at it, we could learn indirectly about that time period. 
That's fair to say, right? We do that sort of thing all the time. You could, you could look at it to study warm and cool colors, how to shade, to create depth. And none of those are what this picture is directly about. But we can certainly faithfully learn about those things by looking at this. So similarly, for the next month and a half, we are going to look at Mark chapters 14 and 15 as we study the fruit of the Spirit. I want to be super clear up front. Mark 14 and 15 is not about the fruit of the Spirit. It it, it records for us kind of the last days, the last events of Jesus' earthly life leading up to his public crucifixion. So it's not about the fruit, but we believe Jesus was empowered and that he lived a fruitful life. And so as we look at his life, we should be able to glean some things and to learn about the fruit. Uh, The thing about the fruit of the Spirit is that, as the name suggests, it's of the Spirit, not of the flesh. So there's plenty of people who are kind of innately loving or more peaceful or more humble than others. But that's not what we're talking about in Scripture. We're talking about something that the Spirit does in and through you. And sometimes that can be hard to discern which is which. But what I have found for me personally, it's when you, when you kind of get clued in that there's something supernatural going on in somebody's life, is when the circumstances surrounding them are not conducive to growing fruit. And here's what, here's what I mean. Like, you think of a, a terminally ill person who, who may be body is withering, decaying, failing them, and you go and you talk to them, and they're just oozing with peace, and you're like, how is that possible? Like, I hit the red light today, and I'm like in a tizzy. Like, how, how is that possible? Or maybe in the next couple weeks, as you get to know some new faces at your table, maybe you'll learn about a guy whose, man, world is just seemingly in shambles. His job's falling apart, his friends have abandoned him, car won't run, just keeps breaking. And and in the midst of that, he's exhibiting self-control, and he's humble, and he's others-oriented. It's in those situations that I'm like, man, there is something going on here. So, if we're going to study the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to look at the life of Jesus, and we're going to look at him in arguably the toughest circumstances a guy can go through. Like, he, he, he goes from hanging out with his friends to they abandon him. One betrays him. He's wrongfully arrested. He's beaten, he's tortured, he's publicly, brutally executed. It's about the toughest run you can go through. Some would refer to that as like the dark night of the soul, where it just feels like the Lord's just turned his back on you. And if in the midst of those circumstances, if we see that Jesus is living a fruitful life, then my prayer for the next month and a half is that we'll all be convinced of two things. One, if Jesus can live like that in those circumstances, then surely he's worthy to be followed. Like, surely he's worthy for us to surrender our lives to. And then number two, if he can live like that in those circumstances, and if he offers me the same spirit as his follower, then surely I can live that out in my own story. That's the premise. So, we're going to go to Mark chapters 14 and 15. So, if you will, open up your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever you prefer to use. Uh, We're going to go to Mark 14, and that's where we'll start. And we're just going to start by reading the text this morning. And as you turn to that, again, we'll start right in verse 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses, and then we're going to get into it. So here we go. And I hear a lot of pages turning. That's a beautiful thing. I just want to encourage you, if you don't feel comfortable opening the Bible, especially at home in your own time, man, start bringing it on Thursdays, and let's just get in a habit. Let's just get some reps. Let's get some reps in opening the Word and getting into it together. 
if you didn't grow up in a home or in a, in a circumstance where you were encouraged to do that, it can feel really foreign. Ricky Bobby, Talladega Nights, I don't know what to do with my hands, my Bible kind of deal. Just bring it, and let's just all practice together. I don't hear pages turning, so I think we're there. Let's jump in. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume on his head? Some of those present were saying indignantly to, or I'm sorry, Why this waste of perfume? Verse 5, It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured the perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. So that's our text. We're going to walk through that in just a minute today. But as we do, I want us to have an eye out for the fruit of love. This week, we're going to look at love. Next week, peace, then patience, and so on. And so we don't want both eyes. We, we don't want to just say, hey, I want this text to be about a certain thing, and so I'm going to read it through that lens. We shouldn't handle the Bible that way. We should want to understand what Mark is trying to communicate to us by his words. But we should at least be able to pull out, you know that guy with the top hat and the one glass, that monocle? Who is he? Somebody say a name. Who do you think of? Monopoly guy, right? That's the first one I thought of. He never had a monocle. It's one of those Mandela effects. Don't Google it on your phone right now. It's crazy. He never had a monocle. But Mr. Peanut, top hat, cane, eyeglass, that's, that's monocle. So, throughout this, this, this morning, we're going to pull out a monocle, a single lens, and we're going to think of this lens of love, and we're just going to look at the text and see if we can just discern some things. That's what we're going to do. And so, to have a lens of love, I could make up some definition, but thankfully, Scripture gives us a pretty clear description of what love is. You've probably heard this passage at more than half of the weddings you've ever been to. It's the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and it says, starting in verse 4, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it doesn't delight in evil, rather it rejoices in the truth, always protects, always trusts, always perseveres, it always hopes. So this idea of love, maybe you've heard of that Greek word agape, is this, this benevolent, others-focused thing. It's not, it's not described in the Bible much as an emotion. Rather, it's usually described as actions that, that happen rooted in a, a value system that, that chiefly values people. And so if you think that it's patient, it's kind, it's all an interaction with another. And so just to start us off fundamentally, I'm going to say that biblical love, that's what we're looking for, that's our monocle. Biblical love is spirit-empowered. It's not manufactured. We're not looking to see if he was able to white-knuckle his way through these tough circumstances. 
We've all tried to do that, and we know it doesn't last super long. We want to see what is spirit-empowered love. What is that about? So that's what we're looking for, biblical love. So with that lens, we're going to now just walk through the text. So if we go back to verse 1, 1 and 2, it says the Passover and festival of unleavened bread were just two days away. And it says the religious elite, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, they're scheming to kill Jesus. And they say, well, we need to be careful. Let's not do it publicly. Let's not cause a riot. So beautifully, Mark, right here in two verses, gives us the context for these scenes. This paints the picture of the landscape for us as we walk through. So it's the Passover festival in a couple days. This is a, a really, really sentimental, valuable, heartfelt, uh, stirs up emotions, a, a, a holiday that, that, that people would celebrate every year. We might think of like Thanksgiving and Christmas. That busy run of the year where it's just like traffic, all these people, where did they come from? There's lines out the store, like tons of energy. Everybody's trying to get the fixings for the meal and the gifts. And so it's two days before Passover. So you imagine the scene, the town is bussing. Like it is busy and, and they're in this town called Bethany. And so there's a lot of people there. Everybody's getting with their family, their close friends. They're going to celebrate this meal. A lot of energy simultaneous to that. The religious elite are looking to kill Jesus. What a coupling that is. And it says that they want to be careful to not cause a riot. So you may know that Rome was the ruling entity at the time, and, and they liked their big empire. They don't want division internally. They're busy protecting their borders and trying to take new ground. So if a riot pops up, usually the way Rome would handle that is they would just send in a bunch of soldiers to just kill everybody involved, and the riot's over. So these chief priests are like, hey, we got to be careful. we got to be tactful. That's the word I like to use. we got to be tactful in how we do this. Let, let's see if we can scheme and come up with a, a plan to kill Jesus. He's a notable public figure. People will be outraged. That's our scene. That's our setting as we then go and look and see what Jesus is doing. So the town is, is buzzing. Lots of people. Big holiday coming. People are out to kill him. Where do we find Jesus? What's he doing? Verse 3. While he was in Bethany reclining at a table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume made of pure nard. So it's busy. It's stressful. A lot of people in town, holiday season, as men, when we get stressed, a lot of times we press into our work and we just grind. Where's Jesus? He's with people. He's not isolated. He's with people. So if, if, I, if I think about that monocle, that lens of love, I would say that spirit-empowered love is communal. He's with people. It's hard to love people. It's hard to live out that 1 Corinthians 13 we read if you're not around people. And Jesus is with people. He's others-centric. He's others-focused. But also what's interesting is he's not just with any people. He's not at the biggest town or the biggest house in town with the biggest swimming pool and the best things. Look at, look at the kind of company he's with. Mark describes it as a leper and an unnamed woman. Like th that's the people Jesus is hanging out with, and I think the, the kind of company we keep reveals what we value. The kind of company you keep reveals what you value. What, what we know about this time period is if you had active leprosy or any kind of what they saw as a highly contagious skin condition, you were forced to go on the outskirts of town and to isolate Thanks to COVID, we all understand what isolation and quarantining is now. But he would be pushed to the outskirts of town either until he got well or he died. 
And so when Mark tells us Jesus is in the home of Simon the leper, it's pretty safe to read between the lines that this guy is no longer a leper. And Mark is probably letting us know, it's not Simon the sorcerer, it's not Simon Peter, it's Simon the leper. You know, that one guy who used to have leprosy. And given the, given the context that Passover is about to happen, and Jesus is hanging out in his house, I'll bet you there's a really good chance Jesus is the one that healed that guy. And I'll bet you that guy said, hey, Thanksgiving's coming, come to my house. I'll, I'll have the turkey. You don't have to bring anything, man. We'll make the whole deal. You just come and let me just host you. Jesus is in the home of Simon the leper. And then a woman that Mark in this text doesn't even give us a name. And Jesus goes and he's hanging out with a, a leper or a former leper and a woman. He's, he's not networking or trying to climb some social ladder. It's a busy, stressful time. And as we'll see in the text, he is aware people are out to kill him. That pressure meter's cranked up and he's hanging out with lowly folks. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. I think, again, that, that that monocle, that lens of love, we can say that spirit-empowered love is humble. He's hanging out with lowly folk. And you might remember our, our definition that love is not proud. He, he's content hanging out with these folks. And so my question, our first question to unpack at our tables here in a few minutes is, uh, if you're taking notes, do you love people? Do you love people? Now, maybe you're an extrovert kind of like me, and it's easy to interact with others, and you enjoy that, and to some degree, it kind of energizes you and fills you up. So for you, you're like, yeah, man, I love people. I'm a people person. That's great. If you're the introvert, your palms are sweating just thinking about turning to table time in a couple minutes. And I don't want to ask a question that lets half the room off the hook, so let's change the question. Not just do you love people. How about do you love lowly people? Like the people who don't raise your social status, the people who don't increase your odds of, uh, of a new business venture or, or to help you climb a, a professional vocational ladder. Like the people who don't really have anything to offer you of value, we'll say. How are you hanging out with people like that? Do you value those types of people? Clearly Jesus does. And something in that realm of thought that I feel like the Lord is teaching me is that living with an eternal perspective greatly helps me love people in the present. Like, if, if this next big project is at work is the end-all, be-all, then people are dispensable because the project is what matters. But if the project is one of a million things and I know that these people have an eternal quality made in the image of God, it greatly helps me to value people in the present, if I live with an eternal perspective. So let's go back to the text, the second part of verse 3. That the woman came who Mark leaves unnamed. The woman comes with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume made of pure nard. It says she broke the jar and she poured the perfume on his head. Now this is kind of a weird scene. Some chick bringing in a bottle of perfume, breaking it and dumping it over Jesus' head. And to kind of think through some of that with, uh, with you all, uh, this, this time period, we, we have a tough time connecting with that at times because manufacturing and production for us is so common day for us that like if, if I can't get on my phone and have Amazon deliver it within two days on my front porch, like I'm, there's outrage in my house. Like what in the world? This world's falling apart. That took four days to get here. I don't have time for that. 
You know, if my phone, if I want to go to something and it takes more than two seconds to load, oh, great, you know, I don't have time for this. My life is over. To, to produce something in the first century, to manufacture something, was difficult. To manufacture perfume, and this says made of pure nard, so a highly purified product would be really difficult, which means it would be very rare, which means it would be very expensive. And the text goes on to say it was valued at more than a year's wages. And so she brings this really expensive gift, this expensive perfume, and she pours it over the head of Jesus. Now maybe you are the guy who, in the locker room after every game, every workout, half a can of Axe body spray. If that's you, you connect with this, maybe. If that's not you, you're still like me, like what in the world is going on? Why would, he, why would she do that? And so there's a few things, thinking about, thinking about this, this picture through the lens of Scripture, that if you're familiar at all with the Bible in the Old Testament, you might think of like David or Saul, these famous kings that were anointed. They had oil poured on their head. They were anointed to show they were going to be made the king. And so there certainly is some, some element to this of, of pointing to Jesus' kingship, her anointing him. And then also, just very practically, Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Christ. Christ is not his last name. It was a title. It's this, this Greek word, Christos, which was just a Greek translation of a Hebrew title, the Messiah. It, the, the most common title he would use and people would use of him was the Messiah. And the Messiah means anointed, the anointed one. So there, there's a lot of overlapping imagery here. But as Jesus makes clear as the text goes on, also she is anointing prophetically his body for burial. That within a few days' time in this text, his body would be killed fully. And this, this perfume, this great amount of perfume, would serve to hopefully mask the smell of death that would envelop him. So as I kind of just thought through this picture in preparation for this, I'm like, man, perfume doesn't, I don't want to get up here at 6.30 in the morning and talk about perfume to a bunch of dudes. Like, it's perfume. They could at least use a different translation, like uh, the international men's translation that maybe used cologne. That would be slightly better. And as I thought through cologne, I don't really wear cologne, uh, but I, this, is, this has great value to me. This is some polo for men that uh, when I was a kid, uh, my, my dad worked at Ford on the assembly line, and he would get up at 4.30 and be gone before I woke up most mornings. But on the weekends, on Sundays especially, we would get ready for church, and I can remember I would get out of the shower. I was probably four or five. He would wrap a towel around me, have me lift my chin and hold my breath, and he'd hit me right in the chest with a shot of polo. And that smell takes me back, and, and I, I don't wear this, but I've kept this since moving out of their house years ago because it's, it's valuable to me. And you can think if she brought this out to Jesus and she wanted to give this to him and went over to his head doing this, boy, she's going to be there a while, right? So it makes sense that she would break it so she could, she could pour it out. And you think that the smell would probably fill the room. But you all don't care about this either. Like I could ask if some of you all wear cologne and we can talk about cologne and perfume, but like you all don't really care about this either. So I try to think, man, if we had a, another translation of something else that would maybe be more valuable to us in this specific context, in this part of the world. And so I'm like, man, a glass bottle, something. So I looked around my house and I found something else that was slightly more valuable. And some of you guys in the back can't see this very well. Some of you, I know factually, could be at the other end of that hallway and you would recognize this. 
this says Van Winkle Special Reserve 12-year Lot B, uh, bottled by Old Rip Van Winkle Distillery. And some of you will say that's not pappy. It has to be 15 years or older. Keep your mouth shut and don't ruin my illustration. Uh, so when I, when I bought my first house back in 2013, uh, I was walking through the place and the, the current owner had not, had not walked out yet. And my father-in-law made a, a real quick jab about, hey, I see your uh, bourbon collection. If he buys this house, are you going to throw in a bottle? The guy said, sure, you buy my house, I'll, I'll throw in a bottle. Sure enough, at closing, he brought me this bottle and gave it to me. And I was like, wow, that's super cool. Uh, we opened it on my wedding day, which was almost right at 10 years ago, September 2013. Uh, opened it, me and my best men shared a pour out of this. Uh, when, I, when I left my job, I'd worked for a company for uh, almost a decade. And when I left there to go to a new business venture, I went back and took a pull off of this. And it's interesting because, you know, after not too long of a time, the bottle wound up empty. It's funny how that happens. So what I did was, I, I couldn't get rid of this bottle. Like, I can't even find this bottle anywhere. So I would get the most expensive, most rare bourbon I could find, and I would fill it back up. And partially because the bottle means a lot, but secondly, because if you all walk in my house, I want you to see this up on the shelf and you to think, I've arrived. You know, like I made it. You see what he has? You see what he's got? And the bottle is full. How about that? And so this woman, she, she gets the most expensive gift she can find. And it says she comes to Jesus and she breaks it. Now there's this word that Mark uses in chapter 2 when he describes a story where these guys tear the roof off and lower a paralytic friend down. So if she tore the top off of this, which she might have done, that would make sense. But he doesn't use that verb here. He uses a different verb. When it says that she broke the bottle, it's the same verb that Mark uses in chapter 5. When he, and it's the only other place he uses this. He describes that Jesus gets on a boat with his buddies, and he goes across the sea for one man, the, the famous demoniac. And he goes over there to this man who is full of demons, and the town has pushed him out to go live in the tombs, to live in the catacombs in a graveyard, because he's so violent that they're like, get away from us. And they, it says they even tried to chain him up with shackles, and it says he shattered the chains. That's, that's the word Mark uses in this text. So this woman brings this expensive bottle that means a lot to her, and she brings it to Jesus, and it says she broke it. Spirit-empowered love is sacrificially expressive. And what I like about that version of broke is that you can't undo it. I, I, I can't put it back. And what she brought to Jesus, she sacrificed in full. And the text says then, she poured it out over Jesus' head. And I think about that scene in that room. Whether you were there or not, but the commotion that that would have caused. That, that within minutes the smell would have filled the room and people would have heard something and came around and was like, what's going on? It's like this big moment of, of, of expressive love from this woman to Jesus. And let's see what happens. Go back to the text, verse 4. It says, Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste? What a waste. You know what that's worth? You know what you could have done with that? You could have at least sold it and done something of value. Like, why, why, would, you, why would you waste that? 
This is why it's always important that we read the Bible in context because if we lifted those two verses out and read them in a vacuum, then these guys are spot on. Like if you have something that's of value, certainly leverage that resource to care for people. In a narrow vacuum, absolutely. But if we read it in the context of the whole here, I think it becomes clear these guys don't care about the poor. They certainly don't care about Jesus. They're really just mad about the the perceived waste. 1 Corinthians 13 was our our monocle for love. If we were to back up a little bit earlier in that text to verse 3, 1 Corinthians 13, 3, Paul writes, if I give all that I possess to the poor, and if I even give my body over to hardship or for work, but I do it without love, I gain nothing. So according to the Bible, it's entirely possible to do the right thing, but with the wrong motive, and it's not valuable. And so these guys rebuke this woman, and, and, and God judges the heart, is what Scripture tells us. And so here's what I'll say. If, if you don't know Jesus, certainly if you don't love him, then the actions of people who do might look really foolish to you. Might look crazy at the very least. Like, you know what that cost? I have a friend that when he retired, uh, he shared that he met with his financial advisor to just crunch numbers, you know. Had a good chunk of money set aside. Uh, and his advisor was like, okay, you, when you were working, made a lot of contributions charitably and to your church and to these organizations. Like, we're going to have to stop that stuff. You don't have the stream of income you once had. Like, let's pump the brakes on that stuff. And he's like, no, nah, I'm going to keep doing that stuff. He said, you, you would continue to give that much money away? And he said, yeah. If, if you don't know Jesus, then the actions of people who do might look really crazy to you. But if you do know Jesus, if you love Jesus, then you recognize that whether it's perfume or bourbon or a car or a job or a relationship, he deserves rights to all of it. All of it. And that's because he himself gave all of it for us for her, for me. And I think he has that in mind as he responds to the outrage of the room. Read what Jesus says in verse 6. He says, leave her alone. Stop bothering her. She has done a beautiful thing. You always have the poor. You won't always have me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body for burial. See, Jesus is keenly aware his death is imminent. He knows this is his last Passover. He knows what's coming. Yet he still is where he is, doing what he's doing. That blows my mind. Man, he's a baller. <laughs> John fifteen thirteen says, no greater, or it says, greater love has no one than this, than someone to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus sees her act of sacrificial, expressive love. I think he receives it gladly, because he knows he's about to pour it all out for her. Spirit-empowered love, if we go back to our monocle, he's just protected her. Love always protects, right? So he's protecting this woman. She clearly loves him. He clearly loves her. And I'm going to say also that spirit-empowered love is unconditional. Jesus didn't say, hey, I'll go to the cross and I'll just pour part of it out. Instead, he pours all of his body out, all of his blood. His body... Is broken, the text says. 
That's where we're headed for the next month and a half is leading up to Calvary where Jesus will sacrifice it in all. There's no going back. It's completely poured out. Spirit-empowered love is unconditional. And as I wrestle with that imagery, I think about like, man, there's a lot of conditions that affect me loving others, if I'm honest. Like when the stress meter is turned up at work, when my boss is out and all of his problems get sent directly to my email, and I keep getting calls paged that are for me from people I've never heard of, and I'm like, why are they looking for me? And when the, the check engine light comes on, but you get the oil change, but it stays on, and you're like, wait, what? I, I don't have time to deal with this. And then one kid's sick, and another kid's angry, and then you get the one angry kid happy, but then he's sick, but then the, the unsick gets well, and then he's... When the stress meter's turned up for Sam, I can tell you guys, I become keenly aware I am not gentle, I am not patient, I don't think I'm real kind. And I, I, those are the times I find myself saying, Lord, you're going to have to help me. I'm white-knuckling, and it's not, it's not coming out like peace. It's not coming out like love, like I need, I need help. So the question, this is our second question to unpack at our tables, are, are what conditions affect your willingness and your eagerness to love others? If you're taking notes, what conditions affect your willingness and your eagerness to love others? And let me be super clear about this. The, the point in asking that is not for us to like sin hunt and bash one another and be like, man, I really suck at this, I really suck at that. That's not helpful. The point of this is that we would recognize the circumstances that trigger us that usually we then try to white knuckle and power and grind our way through and it doesn't work. And instead, we would recognize those circumstances and then run to the one who can offer real peace, real joy, real love. Like those are the times you reach out to the dudes at your table and you're like, man, the stress meter's cranked. Can you pray for me? Because I'm so frustrated. I don't think I can say a nice prayer right now. Can you help me? So the point of that question is that we can sharpen one another and that it would, it would trigger us to then go to the one who can help. Let's close out the text, verse 10. We, we've just looked at Jesus valuing people over things and now we're going to see some people who value things over Jesus over people. So verse 10 says, uh, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So our text starts with these people who want to kill Jesus, but they don't really have a plan for it. To a bunch of people who were mad over some wasted money. To now all of a sudden these people are happy. They exchanged some money because they found a way to kill Jesus. Like the, the depravity in this text is, is thick. Jesus taught in, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, that you can't love God and a lot of translations make it money. That word is mammon. But it can be translated money, possessions, wealth, status. You, you can't run after both. There's nothing wrong with bourbon. There's nothing wrong with perfume. But if you find that you love something more than someone then this has snuck its way up the ladder and it's gotten too important. It's gotten too important. And if you find that you're inclined to value possessions over people, my encouragement would be give something away. If you find that it's really hard to love others, especially lowly people, anyone, because of some things, my encouragement would be give the thing away. And if you have to, Smash it. 
If we live with an eternal perspective, it'll greatly help us love people in the present. So last question to unpack at our tables. What do you love? Not who. Don't tell me you love your mom. Like what? Is it bourbon? Is it women? Is it cars? Is it status? Is it respect? Is it authority? What is it that you love? And again, the reason we ask this question is not to be like, oh man, you're messed up. You like that title. No, there's nothing wrong with those things. But as we look at them, as we turn them over, pick them up, look at them, set them down, one, we'll find some commonality at our tables that a lot of us wrestle with the same things. Shocker. But two, is that things that are innately not evil, not bad, sometimes very sneakily become idols. And, and, and when we give them away, sometimes when we smash them or tear them down, those, those idols lose their power, their hold over us. And so look, in this text, again, we zoom back out with that monocle of love. Man, Jesus is awesome. Like the stress meter is cranked. The, the target checkout lines are through the roof. Everybody's in town and people are out to kill him. And where is our guy? He's hanging out with some lowly people. There's a, there's a commotion. He steps in and protects this woman. He defends her. And then in a few short days' time, he's going to go and, and surrender his life as a sacrifice in total for all of us, for her, for me, for all of you. Man, Jesus is good. He's worthy for us to follow. And then Jesus, upon his resurrection, when he conquers the, the grave, he then commissions his, his followers that, hey... The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the grave, Paul describes it in Romans 8, now dwells in you, now gives life to your body. So the same spirit who empowered Jesus' life now empowers the believer, the follower of Jesus. So if Jesus can live like that then, we certainly are empowered to live like that in our own story today. Real love, the love we're looking for, this fruit of love, is not manufactured, it is spirit-empowered. And spirit-empowered love, it's communal, it's humble, it's sacrificially expressive, it's unconditional. And if you think through those terms, that's really just the very nature of God, isn't it? Communal, humble, sacrificially expressive, unconditional. And as his followers with his spirit, evidence of him at work in us is that we would live lives that look the same, that we would live lives aimed at loving others. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for a text that's, shoot, 2,000 years old and can punch us in the gut today if we need it. But more than just punch us in the gut, that it reveals to us who you are in your heart and that you are good and you're worth it. Thank you for your sacrifice that you gave it all for us in total. Not just part of the way, but all of it. God, as we turn to our tables I know there's guys who've been here for a long time. There's guys who this is their first time, wherever they are. Spirit, I ask that you would meet us right there in our discussions this morning as we unpack these things. I pray that we would be vulnerable and authentic. I pray that we would know you better because of the discussion in this text. And I pray that you would help us to walk and to live in a way that makes you known in this world. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.